0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: I'm Jenna Ellis, and welcome to Just the Truth Podcast, sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. We have a jam-packed lineup for you on some really critical issues that you are going to want to hear that no one else is covering. Jim Jordan will be with us later to talk about some big tech antitrust bills that the Democrats are trying to push through, everything you need to know with that. My good friend Virgil Walker will also join us to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention and what you need to know about the new president. But joining me now, right at the top, is our good friend John Solomon, who's the editor-in-chief of Just The News, and he's going to tell us about some projects he's been working on. John, thanks for joining me. Yeah,
2: great to be with you, Jenna.
1: Yeah, all right. So let's start, of course, with Hunter Biden. Uh, Really interesting that he's now selling $500,000 paintings. I'm not really (laughs) sure that, uh, you know, anyone thinks he can really do the Mona Lisa. But, uh, you know, what's going on with his laptop, all of the crazy shenanigans?
2: uh, He's had a uh, a life of luck, right? $83,000 for a board seat, a month. $83,000 a month for a board seat for which he had no experience for. He's been living high on the hog. Uh, not because of talent, necessarily, but because of political name and political connection, and he admits it himself. But we have some new documents that bring Secretary of State John Kerry into closer focus, closer question when it comes to the uh, Biden-Burisma-Ukraine deal, right? That's the natural gas company where Hunter Biden served for several years, was making 83K a month, as I mentioned. The um, For the longest time, we've known that uh, Hunter Biden was in business with uh, Secretary of State Kerry's. Uh, stepson. His name is Christopher Hines. But when Christopher Hines found out that uh, Hunter Biden was going to go work for this allegedly corrupt Ukrainian gas company, he said, I want nothing to do with it. He wrote his father's staff saying, I'm not involved in this deal. I won't do anything with this deal. His lawyer said that Hunter Biden's decision to go work in Ukraine actually became a point of separation for the two men. What we found out was Secretary of State uh, Kerry's other child, uh, Vanessa, a doctor running a charity here in America, a health charity, very well-respected. Well, she wasn't as concerned about Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine. In the summer of 2015, first, Hunter Biden and his colleagues, a guy named Devin Archer, they throw a big fundraiser for her group in like August of July and August of 2015. And two months later, they come a-knocking and say, hey, can you help us with our Ukraine problem? We got this company. Everybody thinks it's corrupt. We want to do something nice in Ukraine. To gussy up its reputation and get it out of the corruption narrative that it was trapped in, and she writes back and says, "My board's given us okay to go look at this. We'll try to do some charitable health work in Ukraine and help you guys out." The email trail drops off at this, and we don't see any more. But these are emails that the FBI's had for about a year now. It's some of the stuff that we're taking a look at. How Hunter Biden used every family connection he had, every family connection he had, to try to cash in and help his foreign clients as he was making, not thousands, not tens of thousands, but millions of dollars uh, um, in the foreign uh, space while his father was in charge of Obama's foreign policy.
1: This is so disgusting, and I think the American people are even more disgusted with the lack of accountability, John, on the FBI, on Hunter, as all of these stories that you have been reporting so faithfully and truthfully. uh, Do you think that there's ever going to be accountability here?
2: Well, we know that since uh, uh, late 2018, Hunter Biden has been under investigation for uh, tax issues and perhaps uh, foreign lobbying and some other issues. Uh, We know since 2016, the story that we talked about on your show last week, that Hunter Biden knew he hadn't paid taxes on a lot of that Burisma Ukrainian money. Most people by this point would have faced the music. The IRS would have come a-calling. There might have been an indictment or a big fine or a tax penalty to pay. But so far, Hunter Biden, as far as we can tell, has not paid any consequence for this behavior. We know that State Department officials said that he undercut U.S. anti-corruption policy in Ukraine. We know that while he was on the board of Burisma, um, two separate bribe payments were reported by our State Department to the FBI and to State Department headquarters saying Burisma made two bribe payments to buy off Ukrainian prosecutors while they are under investigation while Hunter Biden was on the board. None of that has come with a consequence thus far.
1: Wow. Well, I am so grateful that you are continuing on this story. The American people need to continue demanding justice, demanding accountability. And uh, speaking of accountability, you're also working on uh, some other big breaking news that hopefully we'll have more of tomorrow night. Can you give us a little hint?
2: Absolutely. Let's switch topics from Bidens to the elections. Uh, Election integrity has been such an important part of the work that we've done at Just the News and at Real America's Voice going all the way back to last November. And uh, we recently obtained the internal documents of one of Secretary of State Rasenberger's audits in Georgia. And uh, it takes a look specifically at what Fulton County's records show. Remember, you have to trust what the county says if you do a recount because you're counting on their count of votes. Well, the documents that were in the Georgia state government officials' hands while they were doing an audit last November show widespread irregularities in Atlanta. And I'll just give you a couple samples of what we're finding. There are sequences of absentee ballots that are numbered, you know, one, two, three, four, and all of a sudden, batch six, seven, and eight are missing, and they just count nine. That's what the documents show. There are missing ballot batches listed in the in these documents. It could be human error. Could be a sign of fraud. There is a situation where the same number of vote totals are entered four or five different times. Joe Biden has three ninety-two. Donald Trump has ninety-six. The Libertarian got three. The chances that Four consecutive separate batches of votes would have the exact vote spread, zero, according to statisticians. Uh, we see other things, like there uh, there are boxes that they claim they opened to begin the voting count, and they weren't sealed. They're marked unsealed. Everything was supposed to be sealed after Election Day to protect the ballots. Uh, we're talking about uh, documents that cover tens of thousands of ballots, enough to have had an impact on the election. And we'll, we'll be putting all that into the public domain tomorrow for people to see.
1: Well, we can't wait for that story, John. And you know, you were giving me a little bit of that information earlier, and this is some shocking stuff, everyone. I mean, this is something we've got to pay attention to because this was outcome determinative. And John is gonna be back with me tomorrow night when that story drops, and we're gonna be talking more about election integrity and also the future of elections. This is the number one issue in America today because free and fair votes matter, transparency matters, the truth, as I continue to tell President Trump, is going to come out. We have to make sure that election integrity legislation and litigation gets through before 2022 so we'll be right back with more here on just the truth
3: Ah. the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana
4: it doesn't get any better than this
3: your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or vin and getting a real offer in minutes
5: there really is no place like home
1: Welcome back to Just the Truth. And breaking also this week, the Southern Baptist Convention had uh, their leadership meeting in Nashville over this past week, and new leadership has now been appointed in Ed Litton. And a lot of you may not know who this is, and why is this important? Well, the mainstream media certainly isn't covering it, but of course, the Southern Baptist Convention as well as the community of the church, meaning the Church of Jesus Christ, of course, is always incredibly important that we make sure that we are faithful saints to the gospel and to the truth of theology. And we are rightly dividing scripture. That is so important to continue to make sure that we stand firm, that we reject the lies of the culture, and we always stand firm on the truth. So here to break it down with us is our good friend Virgil Walker, who is the co-host of the Just Thinking podcast. And Virgil, uh, thank you so much for joining me. You were at the SBC convention. So uh, why is this important? Who is Ed Litton? What do you think?
5: I think one of the reasons why it's incredibly important, why people should take notice, is because of the fact that the Southern Baptist Convention is the is the largest body of evangelicals uh, as far as the denomination is concerned here in the United States. Uh, you know, the, the, the numbers, you know, go ebb and flow. You know, 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, depends on who you ask. I always say you got to be careful when you're dealing with Baptist numbers. But the reality is there are a lot of us. Forty-seven thousand churches are involved in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so it really is rep- representative and reflective of a lot of folks. Media is always concerned with the direction because of the fact that that it represents a large voting block. It represents a large uh, di- direction from those who hold to Judeo-Christian principles and values. And so when this, this uh, uh, convention takes place, People stop and take notice and they definitely want to know and be aware of who is it that is taking charge and leading the head of this very large body of people.
1: Yeah. And so there was a change in leadership. There were at least four uh, prominent SBC members that ran for president. And I know the vote was fairly tight. It actually went to a runoff. And so uh, with Ed Litton, what is uh, your feeling on his theology? Is this a good direction for the SBC? I've heard from a few people he may be a little woke. So that wouldn't be good, of course, in my opinion, or comparing with scripture.
5: Yeah, well, as as I have tried to do my kind of be- dead level best to understand a little bit more about Ed Litton, let me let me start by saying he seems like a really nice guy. It uh, seems like a, a guy, a kind hearted guy who served a, a great church as a, as a senior pastor at Redemption Church in in Saraland, uh, Alabama. I believe I'm saying that right. Um, he seems like a, a, a nice guy, but I think that the question you're asking is more to what's behind what is his ideology what are what are the thought process what is his theology uh, how does he view that the 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 issues of the day and and truth be told i'll be honest with you as i've done my research it's really difficult to nail down where he lands uh, apart from a few excerpts uh that, that you'll get little uh, clips here and there that, that seem to advocate what most people embrace as racial reconciliation, there's really not a there there. Uh, What you have to end up doing is you have to go back and begin looking at those people who have come alongside him to advocate for him in the positions they hold. For example, uh, the person who nominated him was Fred Luter, the first black president of the SBC. But if you notice what Luter has done, Luter has connected with other African American pastors who have advocated for CRT. And so by, by just by the fact that you have someone who's nominating uh Ed uh Ed Ed, Ed, um, Ed, Ed, Ed Litton you, you end up identifying maybe where he stands. He's obviously embraced ideas that, that, that those who are supporting him believe are valuable, uh, believe that that, that they, they can stand by and for. But if again, if you go out and, and try to identify where he lands or what his agenda is right now, post-election, he's talking about uh, bringing everyone together, wanting to be a bridge rather than to build Walls. And again, the language sounds great, Jenna, but you and I both know, apart from the language, we have to identify what is actually uh, behind the language, what is it you're going to implement and do with regard to issues that are concerning uh, uh, Southern Baptists, not only Southern Baptists, but evangelicals across the country, issues around critical race theory. How do you stand on those issues? Where How do you view issues? Of race and ethnicity, are we going to be uh, uh, give give uh, uh, an opportunity for partiality, the sin of partiality, by identifying blacks in one category, whites in another? One is a an, is, is the oppressed; the other is the oppressor. Those kinds of questions are very very important.
1: They are. And it would seem very concerning uh, to me, and of course, as as a non-voting member, but certainly within the evangelical community, uh, and seeing someone like this who isn't out there publicly on the record, that would be very concerning because we don't actually know. And as you just said, Virgil, you know we can uh, get a glimpse by the associations and the people and their positions who are championing him. But there was also a resolution, if I'm not mistaken, on CRT that was attempted to be passed within the Southern Baptist. Convention that ultimately failed.
5: Yes, the, the, the folks that founders, Tom Askell, Jared Longshore, friends of mine who wanted to push forward a resolution directly aimed and targeted at dealing with resolution nine. Uh, that was thwarted, uh, that was pushed back and said, no, nope. you know what, they used parliamentary procedure uh, in an effort to say that they couldn't go back and invalidate a previous resolution. What they tried to do in the meantime was take a different resolution, resolution two, and they tried to say, well, this new resolution uh, that, that, that addresses the fact that the Bible is sufficient, and that uh, and, and that issues of of race need to fall in line with the pages of Scripture. And that any the, the other thing that, that that this resolution did was it said that anything any other theory outside of of Scripture uh, related to race and ethnicity are are, are not are, are invalid. Which which is, again is a good start in the right direction. But what it does, Jen, and this is in, this is critically important. What it does to the to the person who really thinks, oh, that sounds right, that sounds good what it does is they what they don't realize is the person who advocates for critical race theory is going to say yes and amen to all of those things they're going to the, the person who advocates for critical race theory is going to say yeah I'm, I'm a christian i believe the bible is sufficient they're going to say yeah I, i'm a christian uh, I, I believe we're all created in the image of god yeah i'm a christian i believe we should, that, that that racism is a sin but they're going to still hold on to an ideology that advocates systemic racism and partiality. So the the person who holds to a position of CRT can validate resolution two without ever letting go of, uh, repenting of, uh, ignoring resolution nine. They can still hold on to that. Mm -hmm. So the person who who doesn't know, who doesn't study these things, who aren't really uh, in the mix of this on a daily basis, don't recognize that that language is important. And so it would have been important for this particular resolution to deal specific with the issue of critical race theory, because we were told in 2019 that critical race theory can, and, and intersectionality, those two words specifically, can be used as analytical tools. And while they use the, word, the language theories in Resolution 2, they never specifically identify what theories they're talking about with specificity. Those kinds Mm. of things matter.
1: They do matter. And you're absolutely correct that language matters and precision matters. And of course, rightly dividing scripture matters. And what you were saying about uh, Ed Litton and saying, oh, we need to be bridge builders and some of that language, that gets into this whole idea of Christianity being a bigger tent and saying we're accepting, here's what we accept in theology, but sometimes what churches and pastors fail to, uh, to do well and to do according to scripture is also reject lies. And so it's not just what you stand for, it's also what you expressly deny as non-truth. And so I'm hopeful, Virgil, that the true Christians, the true church, and uh, the true SBC as representatives of the broader evangelical community will have the courage to stand firm on eternal truths and not just be watered down into the cultural lies because they don't want to have the flack. uh, Like a lot of mega churches that are preaching white fragility and saying, you know, we need to embrace some of these ridiculous uh, cultural concepts that have been popular for the last five minutes. We need to stand on the eternal immutable principles of truth in scripture and make sure that inerrancy matters and the sufficiency of scripture matters. So where do you see this going for the SBC?
5: It's interesting because one one of the things that I kept hearing over and over and over again is we need to be concerned because the world is watching. We need to make decisions that are in line because quote unquote, the world is watching. Uh, I, I'm with you. I think, I think this kind of leans into the pragmatic approach rather than what you're just talking about, which is being specific, being targeted, being very effective with language, making a stand and standing where it matters. Uh, this idea that the world, we, we constantly heard this during the, during the convention. Hey, we need to be careful of what we do because the world is watching. Uh, I, I tweeted out, you know what? I'm, I, the standard is not that the world is watching. The standard is that God sees and, and we need to fear God. And as a result of how we fear God, we need to rightly divide his word. We need to stand on the truth of scripture and be very clear about what we stand for as well as what we stand against i think those things are incredibly important your question with regard to the future of the sbc uh, it'll be interesting in the days to come i don't think like kind of like the the presidency of the united states I, I don't think one man and one one you know one person being placed in the office will will tear down or disrupt everything but i do think uh, evangelicals have got to be more acutely aware of scripture we've got to do a better job at reading our bible and knowing where to stand with regard to truth
1: Yeah. And one of the great things, in addition, of course, to the primary subject of read your Bible over anything else, that is always the primary source of truth. But then you can also listen to Virgil Walker and Daryl Harrison on your Just Thinking podcast. I learned so much from this. Uh, You both just exposit scripture so well. You talk about the cultural issues and you have a brand new one that's coming up. Talk to us a little bit about what you're going to cover.
5: Yeah, we can't wait for this next episode that we're going to cover. We're going to talk about the issue of women preachers. In fact, one of the issues with regard to Ed Litton that that is an issue uh, is the the fact that his, his wife preaches in the pulpit. So there's a there's a little bit, there's a version of, of complementarianism that he holds to that's a little bit less complementarian than what we believe Scripture uh, actually states. And so we're going to talk about those issues uh, in our next episode. We cannot wait. Uh, looking forward to that drop here. Uh, I believe it's going to be the 17th of July and uh, hoping everyone will tune in and check it out.
1: Oh, you know I will. And I'll have to have you hey. and Daryl back here on Just the Truth to talk about that. You cover some uh, important, Subjects that people need to be aware of, Virgil, uh, and to be rightly dividing, as we've talked about. And it's all about just the truth. It always should be about the truth. It shouldn't be about pressure from the culture, pressure from politics, pressure of anywhere else. So we'll be right back with more Just the Truth. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Welcome back to Just the Truth, and joining me now is Congressman Jim Jordan to talk about a topic that we, of course, as conservatives, are very concerned about with big tech and censorship, and there's been a lot of discussion around Section 230. Well, the Democrats have introduced at least five different antitrust bills, but Congressman Jordan, it's your perspective that Americans need to know that these aren't exactly the great big tech bills that Democrats are uh, promising that they are.
6: No. I mean, think about it, Jenna. Big tech is out to get conservatives. We know that. We've seen that. They deplatformed the sitting president of the United States. Every major tech platform uh, uh, did that. But this legislation, this package of bills, doesn't do anything to break up big tech or anything to deal with the censorship of conservatives. Uh, what it does do is, as I think, make big tech collude with Joe Biden big government, which I believe is going to result in, I think it's clear from the language of these bills, going to result in more censorship of conservatives, more treatment of of, uh, conservatives like we saw last fall, where big media, big tech, uh, and the Democrat Party all colluded to keep the Hunter Biden story from uh, the American people in the run-up to the presidential election. So I'm very nervous about this. You you may have seen today where the, uh, the FTC just named their new chairman. Their new chairman worked for, until she was named chairman, worked for Jerry Nadler and David Cicilline on the uh, Judiciary Committee. So she is now the chairman of the FTC, which is where the power goes uh, with, with this legislation. I think there's two fundamental questions. Do you really think Jerry Nadler, David Cicilline, Hakeem Jeffries, and Joe Neguse, who are sponsoring these, le- these pieces of legislation, all impeachment managers, do you really think they want to stop the censorship of conservatives? Do you really think Democrats, who are supporting these bills, the same Democrats who wrote a letter to the big carriers saying, can you take Fox, Newsmax, and One American News off your platform? Do you really think they want to address the problem that we all know is happening out there with the censorship of conservatives? So that's why I I think these bills are wrong, and we're uh, we're trying to stop them.
1: Yeah. And so do do your fellow uh, House Republicans see the same concerns? And I think there hasn't been a lot of media attention to this. And the Democrats are trying to pretend that they're champions for, you know, the free and fair internet, but right. clearly they're not.
6: Right. No, exactly. Well, the, the thing is, these bills just were introduced last week. So we, we got them last Friday. It hadn't even been a week. The bills introduced, we're just now looking at it, and they're going to mark them up next Wednesday. So not even full two weeks to digest what's in it. But once you start to look at them, that each bill sets up a secret committee, secret technical committee for every single business that's covered. Now, look, we don't necessarily like these businesses because they've been attacking us. Amazon, Google, Facebook, uh, uh, Apple, these businesses have been attacking conservatives. But when you set up a a, a secret technical committee for each platform that's going to that's going to handle this, come up with rules and regulations. And we know where this is headed. It won't just stop with the big four. Pretty soon it's Microsoft. Then it's going to be Tesla. Then it's going to be Walmart. Then it's going to be the big banks and the people at the FTC. The current, the, the acting chairman, the acting chairman of the FTC now before Ms. Khan, who's now going to take over. But the acting chairman, she has said that quote, we sh- it's entirely appropriate to use antitrust law to deal with systemic racism in America. That's not that. That's the focus of these folks. So this is the this is the big concern. These secret committees, much like the FISA court frankly. These secret committees are going to establish the regulations for how government working together with big tech is going to, I think, further harm conservatives.
1: Wow. This is shocking, uh, Congressman Jordan, because it seems like the Biden administration, of course, we have to put Biden in air quotes because we know it's not really him, but it seems like what the Democrats' full agenda is, is to get this out of the hands of our elected officials, the people who are actually accountable to the American people, and continue to delegate more and more authority to these secret, unelected bureaucrat committees that operate in secret, like you mentioned, the FISA court, and to delegate that type of uh, authority away from our elected officials just seems fundamentally anti-democratic, anti-constitutional republic that supposedly the Democrats are championing when they talk about all of the election integrity measures that Republicans actually want to safeguard our vote so that we can make sure that we have a voice in Congress, which is supposed to be the will of the American people.
6: It's it's not like we haven't seen big tech working with unelected people, unelected liberals in the bureaucracy in the government. We just witnessed it with Mark Zuckerberg working with Dr. Fauci emailing back and forth, how can we help you? And we know what took place in, uh, during that time is they kept information from the American people regarding the origins of this virus. So, and and we when we when we get those emails via a FOIA request, it's amazing how much of them are redacted out. So, now we're actually making this the law. It's these if these bills would pass, that would make that kind of arrangement where we had to use a FOIA to figure out what, what they were talking about, and where much of it's redacted, now we're actually just passing the law that says, oh, we want big tech to collude with big government to do who knows what. But my guess is it's not going to be in favor of the First Amendment uh, liberties for, for conservatives and for Republicans.
1: Yeah, of course not. And of course, that's not their ultimate goal and agenda. And so, uh, are, is there any pending legislation that uh, you or others that you're aware of are working on uh, to actually do anything about Section 230 in a, in, or big yeah. tech in a better way and in a constitutionally viable way?
6: Great question. We, we introduced legislation last week that we, same legislation we introduced last Congress to uh, get rid of overhaul to Section 230, the liability protection these big tech companies have. So we've introduced that legislation, which is a good first step, but we are gonna have to, I think, address this, this, this monopoly power that these big tech companies have, and they're using it in a way to censor and attack conservatives. So we are also looking at legislation there. But one of the things we might look at trying to do is speeding up the judicial process, because the way antitrust law has always worked in the past is you run it through the courts, and it's a cumbersome process, we need to speed that up because we can all see what big tech is doing. So we're looking at, can we do that? Can we, can we uh, expedite the judicial review process in a way that, that will deal with these big companies much faster when they have monopoly power and they're using that power to censor points of view? Um, so those two pieces of the legislation are what we're looking at.
1: That's great. And, uh, and this is why also, of course, majorities matter. And it's so frustrating, Congressman, to me that when we're talking about all of these critical issues and then we take a step back and look at a lot of the Republican base that's focused on election integrity, they don't like what happened in 2020. And so their uh, goal here or their resolution is to just sit out and say, well, then I'm not going to vote until this is fixed. I mean, this is something that's so critical that we yep. take back the majority in 2022 for conservatives, so that things like these five Democrat bills don't get passed and we can actually push through legislation that matters. Well so why, why do you think that there are some segment of, uh, of some conservatives just saying, you know, hey, we're going to sit this out? I think that's the most unreasonable response.
6: No, no, we, we, we can't sit out. Look, look, this country is the greatest nation ever, and it is worth fighting for. Uh, we, we know what, in the election uh, uh, context, we know what states are doing. You have this, what Georgia did, reforming their election law. Texas is doing it. Other states are doing that. That needs to happen. We need people to stay engaged on all these issues. And here's the good news. Um, in spite of the fact the left controls almost everything... We're 50-50 in the Senate. We're almost 50-50 in the House of Representatives. I think we're going to win back the House of Representatives. We got numerous states doing good things, pushing back on the crazy policies of the Biden administration and the Democrats here in Congress. Like like Governor Abbott in Texas, like Governor DeSantis in Florida. For goodness sake, he's doing a tremendous job. So that's the good news. Uh, but we're up. We we got to all be in this fight because, as I said. The left controls big media, the left controls big tech, the left controls big corporations, the left now controls big sports, the left controls Hollywood, the left controls higher education, the left controls the White House, the left controls Congress, and certainly the left controls the bureaucracy. We've seen that, the so-called deep state or swamp or whatever you want to call it. But again, in spite of all that, we're almost 50-50 because the left doesn't control we the people. And we need to stay engaged and keep fighting for the principles that made us the greatest country ever.
1: So well said. Amen. The left does not control we the people, and they don't control us here on Real America's Voice. We'll continue speaking the truth. And uh, Congressman Jordan, before I let you go, I have to ask you about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Fire Fauci Act. Speaking of all of the emails, all of those things, uh, do you support that? What's your view on uh, all of this coming out with the Wuhan lab and so forth? I
6: I think all the measures that are out there to hold Dr. Fauci accountable. But what I really want is I want him to, uh, I support all those, but I, what I really want is him to come back in front of uh, the select committee on coronavirus, which I happen to get appointed to. Um, I want a chance to ask him some tough questions again. I've had a couple times I want to do it again. I want to ask him about, you, you know, look, it now looks like this, this virus started in the lab. It now looks like they were in fact doing gain of function research, even though Dr. Fauci says they weren't. And Dr. Fauci needs an answer for the fact that he's the one who approved your tax dollars, your viewers' tax dollars, the people I represent, their tax dollars going to EcoHealth, which then sit, sent that money to the Wuhan lab. He knew all that. Dr. Fauci knew all that when he approved that grant. And if it, in fact it was used for gain of function research, and that's where this this virus started, which again, it sure seems like the evidence is pointing in that direction. Uh, he needs to come in and answer some tough questions. And so that's what I really hope happens um, before he, uh, before he's out of government.
1: Yeah, and it, are there any uh, suggestions or plans to haul him back in and ask him to to answer been, those things?
6: Whip Scalise, a number of us have been calling for it. Ranking Member Comer, um, we've been calling for it, uh, but the Democrats keep saying no to it. Because um, again, I think they're playing politics here. Let's let's get the guy who has been the face of this, the all-knowing Dr. Fauci. Let's get him back in for some tough questions. Uh, the American people deserve to have answers to those uh, to those important important questions we all have about this virus.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like the Democrats are uh, in the same thing as with the audits. They're objecting to the truth coming out, but the American people know and the American people want answers. And so we're really grateful, uh, Congressman Jordan, that you are fighting there on the Hill. And uh, real quick as well, I have to get your reaction today, uh, Biden with Putin and, and uh, what that all looked like and what your reaction was to that meeting today.
6: I mean, I, I think the reaction for most Americans is what did we gain? What did the country gain? What did the, the administration gain of the, this whole week at the G7, uh, the meeting with Putin? Uh, what did we gain two months ago when, when our Secretary of State, Secretary Blinken, was in Anchorage, Alaska, meeting with his Chinese counterpart? And the treatment that Secretary Blinken received from China in that meeting, the things they said about our insulting our nation, and frankly, he didn't push back at all. I always I always tell folks that would not happen to Mike Pompeo in a President Trump administration. So I, I don't I think so many people see what what see the same thing that frankly our adversaries see, which is weakness from this administration, and that is yes. not a good thing because they're gonna. That's just that that's what they're looking for, unfortunately. And I think they're finding it in the in the Biden uh, in the Biden White House. So, uh, very let's embarrassing. Hope it gets better.
1: Yeah. Well, keep doing great work, Congressman Jordan. Thank you so much for always being willing to tell the truth here on Just the Truth. We'll be right back.
6: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: Welcome back to Just the Truth. And we have had some breaking news this past week with the Babylon B and their demand letter against the New York Times. And guess what, folks? This actually was a great win for the truth. And joining me now to discuss this phenomenal First Amendment win for satire, but actually uh, against the fake news, I mean, this is just a wonderful story, is Seth Dillon. He is the CEO of the Babylon Bee. And Seth, thanks so much for joining me again here on Just The Truth.
0: Thanks for having me. Don't you just love the irony of the New York Times coming after us for spreading misinformation? I mean, come on.
1: <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. So, uh, So take us through what happened here and then your phenomenal win.
0: Well, what happened was they wrote an article um, back in March uh, that said we were a far right misinformation site that sometimes traffics in misinformation. Um, and, you know, that, that's how they characterized us in this piece. And, and it, it's just, it's so crazy and absurd when you actually read the article because the article itself was criticizing Facebook for not getting irony, for not understanding satire. <laughs> and then in the article, they suggest that we're misinformation, that we're not actually satire. So there's there's levels of irony here. It's like a, it's like Inception for irony. Um, and so uh, we didn't we didn't like that that they were mischaracterizing us like that. So we made some noise about it, and they made an update that wasn't really satisfactory. So uh, we had to go to our legal team and have our counsel draft a demand letter um, demanding a correction from them under threat of you know a suit if they don't do it. Um, And to our surprise, within a week, they got back to us and said they had made a correction to the piece and had removed those defamatory statements, which we are very pleased with that. But uh, it's ridiculous that we have to do that in the first place. It's, it's, It's really egregious that they mischaracterized us that way.
1: Yeah, and I think that this is a great lesson to always stand up for the truth and to push back against the New York Times, which is actually the, uh, the the media that is trafficking in misinformation. Because if anybody reads the Babylon Bee, I think it's hilarious how so many people on Twitter the response is always, you know, this is a satire site, right? And it's like, yeah, why do you think we're retweeting it? You know, and so for right. them, uh, for for the New York Times, then to have this type of misinformation that is clearly uh, defamatory against the Babylon Bee, I applaud you. Guys guys for standing up and saying no this is ridiculous this is false and we demand a correction and I think the more people that stand up and do that and are willing to say we'll take this all the way then that's going to force uh, these mainstream media outlets that want to uh, silence your voice silence the uh, the irony of satire um, they're going to be forced to issue these types of corrections that they should have just done in the first place this shouldn't have been under threat of a lawsuit right
0: It really shouldn't have been, but you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I think it's part of a deliberate strategy. You know, it's not just they didn't make a mistake. Um, There is there's been this effort for a long time on the part of the social networks to stop the spread of misinformation. Um, So, you know, they've been employing fact checkers now for several years to go out there and find uh, misleading, harmfully misleading stories and put a stop to them by either banning the people sharing them or, or taking down the articles or flagging them or something like that. Um, so the you know, legacy media, um, New York Times, uh, Snopes, you know, these types of people, they're taking advantage of this situation to go after targets. Um, they don't like us. They don't like the, 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 they don't like the jokes that we're making and and the and the points that we're making with our satire. It's very clear that they're bothered by us. they're they're not willing to treat us honestly. Um, and so what they're doing is, Lumping us in with fake news so that the social networks will then deplatform us or de-boost us and demonetize us. It's a way of penalizing us, it's a way of taking us out um, by simply mischaracterizing us. So as it's not really something that we want to do is like have these serious conversations where we're talking about litigation and demand letters and all of that. We would prefer to keep this much lighter than that. Uh, but under these circumstances where our business is at stake, we have to care about being mischaracterized.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's a really fascinating point that uh, this is really more nefarious and, frankly, malicious than just getting something wrong and having the New York Times correct it. I mean, this is something that goes to the heart of your business model, and they're using this type of misinformation purposefully to then say to these other social media uh, platforms that you guys need to be diminished. And, you know, do you really think, Seth, that this type of correction uh, is really the best outcome? I mean, this is a huge win that they were willing to do this. But often when I see the corrections, it's very, very, uh, almost sleight of hand, like, oh, sure, we went back in a couple of months later. And I'm thankful that you are amplifying this correction because if they just sent you the email and nobody really noticed, it's always the original article that gets all of the attention. That was the most frustrating thing for me working as an attorney for the Trump campaign and having these types of things, like all of the misinformation that people still believe uh, that is clearly has been debunked against uh, President Trump. And even if they issued a correction months later, it wouldn't get the same level of press attention. I mean, that's why we're happy to have you on this network and make sure to amplify these corrections. But do you think that there needs to be um, a more serious consequence for having this type of malicious action to begin with?
0: Generally, I'd say yes. I mean, in this case, look, this—that you're right. This is another way that they're using a strategy. They have a strategy for deplatforming us, but, but they also have this strategy of, you know, smear somebody, uh, get a lot of views, get a lot of clicks, um, take it back quietly, uh, and then repeat and do it over and over again. They, they do, they do that all the time. They're pros at it. Um, in our case, we still count it as a win because the main thing for us, the really important thing for us was to make sure it wasn't in print in the New York Times that we're a far right misinformation site that sometimes traffics in misinformation. We couldn't allow that to stay in print in the New York Times. So um, you know, it's a, it's a false damaging statement as far as we're concerned. So um, if it's not there anymore, that's good. If a lot of people saw it, that's not great. But at least it can't be cited in future Snopes fact checks. It can't be cited by the social networks in, a, in an argument for how we should be taken off their platform. Um, we've taken that ammunition away from them. So in that sense, it's definitely a win, even if even if Uh, We're not able to amplify this as much as the original story. I do think in our case, though, at least in this case, we're getting the word out there that that it was incorrectly characterized in the first place, um, and now it's been fixed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the more that we can amplify that and show the truth of the matter, uh, ultimately that's good. And I hope that people are who are seeing this are realizing that they can't just take what a so-called reporting article says as fact. They need to make sure that they're doing their own analysis. And they're also thinking critically, because if anybody reads this and looks at what the Babylon Bee writes, they're going to know that this was misinformation. It was so blatantly obvious. And so this is something where yeah. people need to be critical, Readers, they need to recognize the difference between reporting versus opinion, and then also uh, the difference between you know satire and uh, and the rest of of journalism. I mean, that's very obvious from what the B says. But um, Seth, in the last about minute that we have here too, I wanted to highlight a couple of projects that you've had with Prager University. I think it's great that you're talking about the truth about satire. You were on the show um, a couple of months ago talking about satire, and for anyone who missed that interview, it was great. It was one of the favorites of all of our viewers. Um, but talk about your PragerU projects.
0: Yeah, so I did recently, uh, they asked me to do one of their five-minute videos, which is really cool. I was honored to be tapped for that. Um, and I talked a little bit about how um, it, it gets into this whole thing with what's, what happen- with what's happening with the New York Times, you know, how the left is really killing comedy and they're doing it in a couple of different ways. Uh, one way is unintentional. Uh, one way is they're making reality so absurd it's impossible to satirize um and they're not trying to kill comedy that way this is just you know their extreme policies their extreme views are so crazy so out there uh it, satire relies on exaggerating the truth to make it, its points and it's difficult to do that in this current environment so that's one of the ways they're making it difficult for us the other way is by actually trying to censor us deplatform us misrepresent us lump us in with fake news exactly what new york times has done in this case cnn's done it in the past snopes has done it in the past So I focus on those couple things in that video, and I think it's a really nice introduction to some of the issues that we're dealing with and trying to do satire in this crazy world.
1: Yeah, and it's very, very well done. So definitely follow the Babylon Bee, follow Seth Dillon, look at all of the PragerU uh, videos and also uh, what he's done with Michael Knowles, our good friend from The Daily Wire. And we'll be right back here with more on Just The Truth.
5: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: Welcome back to Just the Truth, and I have such a distinct honor tonight to have my friend David Geisler, who is the son of our dearly departed friend Norm Geisler, who is a champion of uh, Christianity and apologetics, and I personally uh, knew before he passed and uh, spoke together at an apologetics conference, and there's a brand new movie about his life and legacy, and I want you to watch this.
4: I saw a picture of Christ on the wall, and I said, uh, hey, mommy, uh, is that Santa Claus?
0: You know, tell me why this is true, not what you think is true, tell me why this is true.
4: I was in the 11th grade before they discovered that I couldn't read. And God reached down and said, all I need is some raw material, and I was good raw material. I had to learn to read and learn to read the Bible Faith that saves us is not an unreasonable faith. They drunk, staggered by. He said, you're not supposed to be doing this. She reached down and he said, if you say anything about Christ in this house again, I'll beat you to death with this poker. I'm either gonna have to get answers or stop witnessing. We cannot know ourselves truly unless we know our God truly. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The bottom line is Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible is the Word of God. Most people state the Bible is true and 95% of Christians all over the world and many pastors can't defend it. You can't deny truth, you can't deny what truth is.
5: His legacy is to show that to be saved does not mean to lose the mind.
4: You don't have to just believe it, you can know that it's true. People would say, I've never seen anybody do
3: something like this before.
0: It opened
4: doors. It was way ahead of his time.
3: He paved the way. Walked out of that classroom, And I looked up and I said this
4: prayer, God, I've always believed you were there. Now I know. All things are possible with God.
1: And joining me now is David Geisler, who's with Norm Geisler International Ministries. And David, this is such a wonderful project. And uh, tell me, why is this movie such an important uh, topic right now for uh, Norm Geisler International Ministries?
3: Well, one of the things that Dr. Ed Heinsen says in this movie, Dr. Ed Heinsen is the former dean at Liberty, and we interviewed him, and he said that basically in every generation, God raises up a handful of people like Norm Geisler to speak to the culture, to challenge the way we've been doing things and point ahead to how we could do things better in the future. And then he went on to say that much of what my father wanted to say in the 20th century was really speaking to what's happening in the 21st century. And um, this movie kind of tells that story of his life um, of how uh, God helped him to find the answers he was looking for so that uh, he understood that his faith was reasonable. It wasn't just a blind faith. And um, he raised up all these leaders and all these tools, to help Christians to know how to answer the tough questions that uh, people raise today. And this movie um, is just a very interesting story. I didn't know all the uh, the details, actually, until I started interviewing some of these Christian leaders. The influence that my father had uh, in the 80s and the 90s and, and the 70s as well, um, that really helped the evangelical church stay Um, where it should have been uh, in terms of uh, helping people to understand the truth.
1: Yeah, and he really did uh, impact so many lives. Uh, my family is a testament to that as well. I know that uh, my parents have read a lot of his materials and books. And, and his legacy, uh, Norm Geisler's legacy, is, uh, is even more than the, uh, the truth of Christianity in terms of the theology and having answers for a reasonable faith, but also to have the answers to reject the cultural lies. And that's something that is profoundly important, I think, in this film as well.
3: Exactly. And one of the things he says in the movie is that from the 1960s to the 1990s, he talks about what the Supreme Court did and how we got rid of God and uh, creation. We couldn't teach creation in the public schools. We couldn't teach God uh, ordained uh, values, moral values. Um, and, and now we're, we're suffering as a culture because of that. And so we we really need to heed what he was saying and uh, really uh, start to engage the culture again.
1: Absolutely. And I love that the title of this is not qualified because so many people think that the only way that God can use you is if you're some phenomenal speaker, you have Instagram influence, you have you know something, but his life and legacy is all about God using him uh, as just a regular person. I think that that resonates with so many people that God can use us where we're at as well.
3: Exactly. And that's the bottom line of the movie. The movie is that if God can use Norm Geisler to have an influence on so many people and, and make a difference, and he wasn't qualified, then he can use us as well.
1: That's fantastic. And where can people find this and watch this incredible film?
3: So go to the website, normgeislerthemovie.com, and you can learn how to bring the movie to your church or your organization uh, to help equip uh, Christians. And And we have a bunch of tools that will go with the movie so that we can better help the church.
1: This is fantastic. And David, uh, your your father obviously has had such a profound influence on so many, and I'm so grateful for your time tonight, for uh, you and your wife, Charlene's friendship uh, to me. And thank you so much for coming on tonight here on Just The Truth, I really appreciate it.
3: Well, thank you for having me, appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, and now to Just The Word. Matthew 25:23 says, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness.